Dear Diary, I realized something today, something that people have told me before but maybe I never understood. Maybe it's because of the things I've been reading, maybe it's because of the conversations I've been having, but I think this could be big. There's a lot I still have to learn, but I think there's could be big enough to change my life forever. I'll write more about it later. Good morning, friends. We're glad that you're here. Well, like it or not, my family has returned. So we're here, and uh, <laughs> we're glad you're here too. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. So if you've begun attending our church somewhere over the last five or six weeks, my family and I got to go on a sabbatical. Uh, the church uh, made space for that. We've been here as a church for seven years, and so thank you uh, to the church uh, for, for having that kind of built into who we are as a church to be able to take that time of rest. So if I haven't met you yet, my name is Pastor Milo, and it's nice uh, to meet you, and it's good to be here. Uh, I return re- relatively unscathed. Uh, 7,500 miles uh, we, we traveled this summer, and uh, according to the trip odometer computer thing in my uh, vehicle, we did that over 150 hours of driving. So those of you who are math whizzes, you're going really quick, you're doing it really quick, that's an average of 50 miles an hour. So it wasn't like we were uh, at much of a high speed. It's not that fast. And so actually that tells you some of the driving that we were doing, the way we were winding around sometimes up and down the sides of mountains. And and it was just some of the most beautiful places uh, that we've ever seen. Most of our travels were actually at a much higher elevation uh, than we have here, what we're used to. So we started out, we kind of made a run for it and started out in Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado. Uh, which is 6,000 feet above sea level. And we just went up from there. So to give you perspective, where we're at right now, Buffalo, New York, is about 600 feet uh, above sea level. And so uh, even if you go out to Ellicottville or some of our ski resorts, that's like 1,500, 1,600 feet. So we were starting out 10 times higher uh, than we are right now. And they warned us as we began. They said, you need to be aware before you go out for a hike, even before you uh, walk out on the sidewalk, that you could potentially have altitude sickness by just being this much higher than your body is accustomed to. You need to take it seriously. And we were given uh, these things. They were cans of air to take with you in case, uh, in case you get sick. And they, literally, they look like spray cans. Uh, they look like a paint spray can, that, and, and in it there's air. It doesn't weigh anything because all that's in it is air, and you carry it with you, and if you happen to get sick, then you can peel off the wrapper, and then you can stick it in your face and spray it in your face. Oxygen, but it's, nothing comes out. It's air. So you spray yourself with oxygen and help yourself to feel better. Uh, we did not have to do that. We did see a few other people uh, doing that, but it was surprising how quickly Uh, When we first arrived, how quickly you got tired because you're not accustomed to that. But here's what happened. After two days, three days, and certainly by the end of the first week, all of a sudden we were fine. Like completely and totally fine. The same hill that you would have gotten tired walking up the first day. Uh, The second day you were less tired, third day, and then it just kind of went away. Isn't it cool how your body works, the way that God has created us it just recalibrated itself it said I don't need as much oxygen that I needed six days ago now I'm perfectly fine I'm more efficient with less oxygen and it just fixed itself I didn't do anything I didn't take a pill I didn't drink a certain uh, fluid I didn't do any of those things it was just fixed God just took care of it problem solved 
If you've got a Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, or you can use the Bible that's there in front of you. If you're watching online, I'll be in the New International Version, and you can use a digital version uh, if you want. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. If you've been tracking along with us as a church, we've been moving through the book of Revelation this summer. And while I was away, Pastor Brian did all the hard stuff. Uh, so it's good to be back, Brian. Thank you so much uh, for doing that. Uh, it's been a journey uh, for sure, those of you who've been here along the way. And Brian covered some of the most frightening and confusing passages uh, in this book. And there are still uh, more to come. But let's read today from Revelation chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 15. So if you've got your Bible there in front of you, or the words will be on the screen, I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 15. Would you read together with me? We're going to read four verses, 15 through 19. Read together with me. It goes like this. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. And so the sermon this morning is called The Final Trumpet. So it's our seventh trumpet, The Final Trumpet. But today is Fifth Sunday. And Fifth Sunday here as a church, when there are five Sundays in a month, maybe you notice, we, we invite all of our kids to come in and be part. So we like to say here as a church, Fifth Sunday is Family Sunday. So it's good to have you this morning. First, the fifth graders that are here in the room with us. There's some logistical things that happens with that. It just gives some of our volunteers a week off when there's five Sundays in a month to catch their breath. But then there's some other things that we like to do and be intentional about being together as a family. And so what we like to do is we like to have sermons or sermon series that are kid-friendly, to be able to invite our kids in to say, this is, this is something that makes sense to you, you're going to be encouraged by, and then you get into the middle of a series on the book of Revelation. What are we going to do uh, this morning when it falls in the middle? Uh, should we bump Fifth Sunday to another week? Should we wait till another series? What are we going to do? Well, kids, if you're here with us this morning, and you are, but parents, adults, turns out you need to hear this uh, one more time as well. There's something about the book of Revelation. It's basically one of the trickiest books uh, in the Bible. You need to know that. You need to know uh, it's tricky because it's a different type of writing than all of the rest of the books of the Bible. Almost all the other 66 books of the Bible of the Bible are written in a different way. So what we have in our hands when we say the Bible, it's actually like a handheld library. There's 66 books in this library. And so this book is different from the other. It's called apocalyptic literature. And all that means is there's a lot of symbols. There's a lot of signs. There's a lot being represented there. And sometimes the author gives us really specific and tells us exactly what the symbols mean. For instance, there's a symbol of the lamps, and those represent the churches. We are told that these lampstands represent the churches. But quite often, it doesn't. And adults, we get confused. We scratch our heads. We try to figure out what it means. And it's not just us. Great minds have wrestled with this for centuries on what it all might mean. Now, the word revelation itself uh, kids, it actually means uh, surprising or previously unknown fact. 
It's a surprising, previously unknown fact that's being revealed. God is revealing something new, a new fact to his people. Jesus is bringing something new, and God is making all things new. Revelation was written after Jesus died and rose and went up into heaven. And I want to warn you that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a little bit strange. It's a little bit mysterious. And these are, these are letters that were written, or a letter that was written uh, from a guy named John. He's one of Jesus' apostles. And it's written by him to the seven churches in Asia Minor, we find out. And this is the word that he received from Jesus. This is what he needs to share and wants to write this letter to the churches. God wanted him to write it down so that he could share it with everyone. He could give it to the people and show them what would happen even in the future. As we took our travels this summer, some of you, some of, some of you got postcards from us because we wrote to some friends and some family and, and we could have written to all of you but we would forget sometimes because you, you just don't think about it all the time but you get postcards and we got lots of postcards still that we never wrote on and maybe you'll still get a postcard from us that says Grand Canyon on it but we'll get there, okay? But we had all these, why did we do that? Because we wanted to help share with you what we experienced. Fortunately, social media allows us to do that a little bit. Because this trip was so amazing and a lot of different things that we've done, I could just tell you story after story about the things that we saw, the things that we did, the places that we went, the people that we met. And I'm sure there will be illustrations for the next number of years, maybe the next seven years even, will be popping up that I'll be sharing illustrations. And finally, you'll be rolling your eyes back and we get it, you went on a trip. So what? (laughs) But there was a lot of things that were far more grand than we ever expected. All the different times you read it in a magazine or look at it online, uh, it just was so much more than we expected. So much, things were farther apart than we expected. Uh, And then there were days that we just sat down as a family and enjoyed one another and just had a sweet time together looking out and being able to talk about the things that we were experiencing together. And even though our trip was pretty long, in the end, as it was, as it was starting to narrow down, it could have gone longer. And, and we just never wanted this experience to end. And that's why I'm so grateful you're here with us this morning, because it helps remind me of a big idea I want to talk about today, and that is this, that God is infinite. God is infinite. Infinite means that there's no beginning, there is no end. So let me show you with a picture. That's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to show you a few different pictures. So you can take this picture... And you can draw this uh, in the corner of your Bible. You can draw it uh, in your notes on the back of the connection card as you're writing it. Uh, as you see, it's, it's, it's the, the symbol for infinity. And so uh, it's, it's the number eight, and it's turned on its side. Uh, Elias is on a Little League uh, a team, and he, uh, he wore it this morning, Elias. How cool is that? He's number eight, and he's number eight, and he loves to be number eight because he says, Dad, I want to be the racetrack. He thinks that there's a little racetrack that goes around in the back. He says, that's what I want. I want to be racetrack. And so he's number eight. So you can be racetrack this morning and draw yourself an infinity circle uh, so that you can kind of see that God is infinite. And the reason that's there is because that circle continues to go around and around. And some of you are better artists than others. You actually can try to do some shading things and try to actually demonstrate how that circle continues on and on, going on and on, around and around. Turn back in your Bibles a few pages. This is Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to help demonstrate this fact. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. And there was a rainbow that shone like an emerald, and it encircled the throne. 
And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. This should sound familiar. In front of the throne there were seven lamps that were blazing. Verse 6, also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And so John is caught up into heaven. He is seeing all these things. And the first thing, what's the first thing that catches his attention? As he's brought into the heavenly places, what's the first thing that's brought to his attention? It's a throne. It's not his Aunt Lucy that he hasn't seen. It's not his grandmother. No, it is, it is a throne. And, and, and there's so many of us that are thinking about heaven. We think about this reunion that we're going to have with the people that we love and the people that we miss, the people who have passed away. But what, his focus is entirely there on the throne. He sees the throne and he sees the one who sat on it. It's all that he can focus on. Can you imagine it? It's like being at a party you never want to leave. It's like being in a conversation that you want to go on and on and on. There's some conversations you want to end very soon, and you wish it would end, and it goes on and on and on. But no, this is a conversation you want to be part of. You want to engage in, and you wish you could keep talking. You never want it to end. It's like listening to a new song, and, I, and you, you hear that song, and you just want to put it on repeat and play it over and over and over. It's like, like watching a movie that's in, in a world or in a place that you'd like to be a part of. And you could just watch more and more scenes, more and more storylines of that same movie. It could go on and on. It's like eating a meal that is so delicious that you just wait for another course to come by. And you, you would never get full. Or, or drinking a sip of water when you're thirsty and just imagining yourself drinking more and more and more and more. And then all of heaven, it says, are being completely refreshed. And as they're being refreshed, then suddenly they all begin to shout, verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Who was, who is, and is to come. Our God is infinite. Racetrack. Our God is infinite. It goes on and on and on, meaning that there is no beginning. There is no end. And as we move through the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and further, John describes this lamb, this lamb that has been been put to death, And we know this lamb is Jesus because Jesus has been described as a lamb and he has been put to death. And the lamb comes to the center, to the forefront uh, for all to see over the next several chapters. There's many symbolic things that are being described. But the lamb is always at the center, the answer, the one who is worthy, the one who was and is and is to come because God is infinite. And the things that are described in these chapters are very mysterious And to be honest, they're very confusing to understand. Kids, your parents are very confused about what they're reading in the books of Revelation, the chapters of Revelation. There are times that parents, that we will take the book and and close the book and say, and close the Bible and say, I'm done reading Revelation. I don't want any part of that. Some of you have shared that with us multiple times. We've been going through this series. I tried to read Revelation, whether it was last week, last year, 14 years ago. And you said, I just haven't been able to come back to it again because it kind of freaks me out. And, and you stop reading it all together. You know what's worse than getting freaked out as a kid particularly? It's when your parents get freaked out. That's even worse because it kind of messes with us too. I remember being a kid and coming into my parents' room 
uh, late at night. I was having a, a bad dream or something like that. I came in, and I, and I came into my parents' bedroom, and I, and I said something like, Mom, I can't sleep. And just as she was like kind of rolling over, so I'm standing at the end of the bed, my dad pops up out of bed. And he comes towards me, and as he is coming towards me, he proceeded to walk into me, bump me back, and then go across the room. And when he came across the room, then he thumped, he walked right into the, into the wall. He just walked right into the wall. And then he started jumping up and down, grabbing at something from the ceiling. And he said, there's red licorice everywhere. It's everywhere. We've got to get it out of here. You as the kid, I'm standing at the end of the bed, I'm going, what on earth is going on? Like, whatever I was afraid of was not nearly as bad as whatever this guy was going through. I just went back to bed. <laughs> so yes, these chapters, they can be confusing, they can be spooky, and even the most brilliant minds have tried to come together and be able to come up with guesses at what some of this symbolism represents, but they're still only guesses. And we've shared with you, uh, as best as we can, some of the different uh, ways that we can look at these passages. Just like I can share with you, I have a theory as to why my dad thought there was red licorice hanging from the ceiling. I, it, was, it was a moonlit night. I was wearing a red shirt. I think that somehow the red off the moon maybe was reflecting off of the mirror. My mom had a mirror in the corner, and I think it was maybe splashing something on the wall. And that's the best I can come up with. That doesn't mean you need to hop up and down and pull licorice off the ceiling, but I think that's what was going on. And we're kind of in that mode when we look sometimes in the book of Revelation to try to figure out what is happening here, what is going on. But here's the thing about Scripture, and here's the thing that we know about the Bible, and here's the thing that we know about Jesus. Uh, he's the one that we need. He is the one that we rely on. He's the one that's at the center of everything. He is the one that was, the one that is, and the one who is forever because our God is infinite. He goes on and on and on. So no matter what your fears are, what your worries are, no matter what you've been through, and some of you have been through some really trying things, some difficult things. We sing about the mountains in the valleys this morning. Some of you are in a valley right now. Some of you are at a mountain peak, and that's beautiful, and you look out, and you can see uh, what God is doing. But no matter where you are, no matter how old you are, we can know and rely on the fact that God is always there, though he was, he is, he is to come. He is always there, and that our God is infinite, and his love is infinitely more than we would ever be able to imagine. He was, he is he is to come. He was. He is. He is to come. Amen? One of the silly road trips we came up with over the years that, that we did not come up with on this trip, but we did incorporate it on this trip, is if you come across a tunnel on a highway, and some of you do this, but most of you don't, and you think we're crazy for doing it, but it's our family's thing, so we're going to keep doing it, okay? We come across the tunnel on the highway. As you approach the tunnel, we roll down the windows, we take a deep breath, and then you go, ah, all the way through the tunnel as long as you can go. Usually, you can't make it to the end of the tunnel. And so you go, ah, ah, and by the third or fourth breath, you go, ah. And then everybody, when we get to the end of the tunnel, they say, I did it in four breaths. I did it in one breath. You know, that kid is lying. There's no way he did it or she did it in one breath. 
And as you might guess, the length of the tunnel is a determining factor as to whether or not you are successful in this game or the speed of the traffic that's going through it. In Revelation chapter 11, the readers that John's letter is coming to, they have endured tremendous struggles as they're kind of going through all of these things. As we've been going through the seven seals, you kind of hear what's, what's happening and how it all kind of comes together. They've heard the rumble of four horsemen. They've seen the collapse of the kingdoms and the foundations of the earth. They've gone through these seven trumpets. They've seen the moon and the stars seemingly plummet to the ground. They've experienced an army of locusts. It says they are appearing like horses charging into battle. They, they are, these are the symbols that are being talked about in here. And for those who are going through the midst of this tribulation, for those who are going through and reading this letter, or if you and I are reading through it, they're frightened. We are frightened, scared. We're exhausted. All the while, praying for deliverance, calling out in fear. And they need to know that help is on the way. And that's what the seventh trumpet is all about. When you look through, you can see, ah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We're not there yet, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And today we hear the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, the final trumpet, the final woe. And yet when we come to it, there's these, these praises and then these loud shouts in heaven. Instead of silence, there's these loud noises with wonder. And, and man, if you're thinking about it, you, you've heard these woes, like these awful things that have happened. This is the final woe, we're told. And yet they are praising and rejoicing simply because it's almost the end. Simply because they can see. It's all about curtains. It's almost there. And it's one who's on his throne that we worship because God is infinite he was, he is, he is to come. But secondly, this morning, the second big idea I want to share with you is that God is on his throne. You see, God is in charge. So in your margins of your Bible, or if you want to write it on the back of your, and some of you will be able to draw these, a beautiful throne, because a throne represents power. So draw yourself a throne to be able to demonstrate, uh, to be able to make this connection as we're taking these notes here of the throne, because the throne signifies authority. You see, God is infinite. God is infinite. But God is on his throne. God is on his throne. And that's what I'm being reminded here, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. You read this a minute ago. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, the seventh trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God. They fell on their faces and they worshipped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is, the one who was, because you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. The one who is, uh, the one who was, the one who is and has actually reigning right now God is on the throne so the seventh trumpet sounds the final trumpet sounds and the kingdom of God says here that the kingdom of God replaces the kingdoms of this world now, if you were a first century Christian, you were reading this, or perhaps even this morning, as you were reading this letter, don't forget it's a letter that was written from John, you're reading it, wrote to them for the purpose of revealing who Jesus was to them. And do you know who they immediately think of? They, they read this, they hear this, and, and maybe it's what you thought of too when you hear the seventh trumpet sounding and this final trumpet blast. They are remembering, maybe you are remembering as well, the, the battle of Jericho. 
And in the battle of Jericho, what happens? Joshua chapter 6 tells us that God tells Joshua to march around the city for seven days, right? Silently marching around the city. Every morning, the whole army, all the Israelites come out and they march around the city. Every single morning, they do it for seven days, and they carry with them the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is their tangible representation that God is present, Almighty God is present with the people of Israel. And as they go around each day, they march around the city. And God is with them each of those seven days. You see, the walls of Jericho were also a symbol. They were a symbol of power, a symbol of strength, a symbol of human ingenuity. That this was going to be a way to be able to keep from having to fight the battles that you fought before. Now you've got a wall, you've got a fortress, you've got a way to be able to keep people out. Because they were a supreme people. They were a supreme nation. They were the supreme fighters of the land of Canaan. And this, this land of Canaan was a land full of giants. And so this Canaan land was a kingdom of this world. Canaan was what? It was a kingdom of of this world but who is regardless who was sitting in that chair behind the walls in Jericho in 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 the throne room in the palace regardless who was sitting in that chair Jericho teaches us who actually is sitting on the throne who is on the throne when the walls of Jericho there to protect the other leader no the walls of Jericho are only temporary because God is on the throne You see, God is infinite, and God is on the throne. So Joshua marches the Israelites around the city the seventh day, and he does it seven times, as you know. And the end of the seventh day, the seventh time on the seventh day, what do they do? They pull out their trumpets, and they blow seven trumpets. And after they blow their seven trumpets, what do they do? You should see it come from Revelation. They all shout and lift their voices. And there, with the presence of God, Represented by the physical Ark of the Covenant, the walls come tumbling down. Why? Because God is on the throne. God is in charge. No matter what the situation may be, no matter how weak or insignificant the army of Israel seem to be, no matter how weak or insignificant you may feel at times, God is in control. God is on the throne. He was on the throne in Joshua's day. And here in John's letter to Revelation, we see as well that he remains on the throne. In fact, John even gives us a glimpse. He says, as the clouds parted back, what does he see there in the throne? He sees the Ark of the Covenant is demonstrated there. Why? Because the presence of God is there and God is on the throne. And the seventh trumpet sounds and all the people shout. And God demonstrates his authority over all the earth. We're told that the kingdoms of the earth become or replaced by the kingdom of God, which leads us to the third big idea I want to share with you this morning. Not only is God on the throne, but our God reigns. Not only is he on the throne, but our God reigns. So in the margin of your Bible and your notes, you want to draw yourself a crown. Draw yourself a crown to remind yourself that God reigns, and he will reign forever and ever. Verse 15 reminds us again, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. There was loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Our God reigns. 
We're drawing a crown this morning because it represents an active ruler. Someone who is at work. The king who is on duty right now. The, The crown signifies for the king, it signifies his work clothes. He's in his work clothes. He's ready to go to work. He's wearing his crown. Our God reigns. This may seem obvious, but actually it's not. There are actually many people who believe, falsely I might add, but there are many people who believe that God created the universe. He spun it all into existence and then went somewhere. He took a nap. He went somewhere else to do something else. And when he feels like coming back after things have fallen apart and broken, then he'll check in and see if there's something he needs to do. This is a false idea, but it's actually something that pervades our culture quite a bit. This idea that, yes, we can believe in God, but he doesn't care what's happening to me today or tomorrow, what's happening in our church. He's not present and active in it. He's like the old man who fell asleep at the Christmas party. I don't know if if this is the way that your house was, but it was for me. My grandfather, every single year, he was a man with an eighth grade education. He was a man who worked really, really hard. He kind of pulled himself up by his bootstraps and was a self-made man. That was my grandfather. And he always worked outdoors, was always active outdoors in the cold and all types of weather. So come Christmas, when our family would all gather together, he'd come in and he would immediately fall asleep. I mean, there was not even five seconds before he would just pass out. And the sound of him snoring over top of all the kids tearing apart their presents, all the kids running around, and he was just passed out entirely asleep. And too often people assume that God is on the throne, but God is passed out and he's asleep on the throne. He's there, yes, but he has, has nothing to know. Our God is active. Our God reigns. Because the God who is asleep on the throne is entirely disinterested in what is happening here on earth. And nothing could be further from the truth. Our God reigns. One of the iconic Christmas classics sung by church choirs, high school choirs, choruses, is the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. And part of the legend that goes behind it, it tells the story about how King George II was so moved by hearing the music of Hallelujah that he jumped to his feet during the London premiere of the Messiah. And everyone then in attendance followed suit as not to be sitting as the king stood. But there's another version of the story. There's another version of the story that King George had actually fallen asleep. The concert was really long. Have you ever been to hear all of the Messiah? It's a pretty long concert. Some of you have sung in that concert. I have sung in that concert. Some of us are falling asleep in the choir during the concert. It's a long concert. And so he had actually fallen asleep. And when that chorus erupts, hallelujah, he was so startled that he jumped to his feet. And by doing so, he's the king. And so if he's standing up, you have to stand up. And so everybody in the room stood up. And from then on, the tradition is that we stand up when we hear the chorus. Hallelujah. Our God is on the throne. He is not asleep. He is actively ruling in his kingdom. Our God reigns. And just like that chorus does say, which is a quotation from this very verse, that he shall reign forever and ever. Handel also quotes from Revelation 19 when it says, I heard as it were a voice of a great multitude, a voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thunder. He's saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. 
Aleluya. Aleluya. Dear diary, I realized something today. Something that people have told me before, but maybe I've never understood. Maybe it's because of the things I've been reading. Maybe it's because of the conversations I've been having. But I think this could be big. There's a lot I still have to learn still. I think this could be big enough to change my life forever. I'm not God. I'm not God. As a band comes forward this morning, this is the last big idea I want to share with you today. It's a pretty easy thing to draw. It's basically a circle with a line through it. It says, I'm not God. Because God is infinite. Beyond anything we could ask or imagine, beyond anything that we can comprehend, God is infinite. God is infinite. God is on the throne. He's in charge. He is the boss of all things in the universe. Our God reigns. He's active. He's paying attention. He's in charge. And he's making sure of, of what's going on, making sure, representing himself in different ways, shadows at times, where there are different ways that God is moving, and we have to be aware of those things. I'm not God. And you're not God either. Jesus teaches this truth in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, and he says, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. Or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. I'm not God. And too often we have the idea that we are in control or we are, we are going to, to deal with things. And we read chapters, we read, read books like this, and we start to figure out, well, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be part of this? How, what, where do I fit into this story? The story's not about you. Revelation is not about you. You are not God. This is his story. This passage that Jesus teaches on, it says you're going to love one or you're going to hate the other. The idea of loving the flesh. We see this through scripture oftentimes. We can take H off that word and, and, and change flesh around just to say self. It's about self. We love ourselves rather than loving God. I'm not God. And neither are you. But we're told in so many different ways and so many cultural things that are happening. When things happen around the world, how does this affect me? What is this going to do to me? How is this going to affect how I go through my day-to-day life? Is, is it going to require me to do something that makes me uncomfortable? How is this going to affect our nation? How is this going to affect our city, our town, our world? And we start to say, well, what does this have to do with me? And the realization is, you're not God. The grand story that is being told is not about you. I've I've slammed Burger King for a lot of years from the slogan, have it your way, because it's just such indicative statement to how we actually think the world runs. I'm not God. We need to come to a point, an understanding when we look at passages like this, when we look at books like this, and, and next week when we come back and we're going to take the end of, of the whole book, we've taken 14 weeks to this point, and we're just going to sprint to the finish. 
and cover what some have talked about to be the bloodiest battle in Scripture. I'm going to do my best to make an argument that there may not be any blood in the bloodiest battle. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about God. If you're here this morning and you, 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 just like as I'm thinking through these things, you're coming, coming to these conclusions to be able to say, this, if that's the case, if it's not about me, then I need to change which master I'm serving. John chapter 3, 16, verse that's familiar to all of us, tells us how, how a, a holy father gave his son for you and for me to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. I can't do that because I'm not God. You can't do that either. Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. In that same chapter, he teaches how to pray. What does he say? He says this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because he's God. He deserves all the honor, all the praise, all the glory. And what does it tell you after that? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So his will ought to be done now. And we need to stop serving the master of self. And start serving We are going to share this morning in a time of communion. In that time of communion, we are told in Scripture, this do in remembrance of me. Be reminded of what has happened because Jesus, the Holy Son of God, gave himself as a sacrifice, the only one who could provide that sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And when we have kids in the service, this is an opportunity for parents, for you to be able to share that truth with your child. Parents, don't let your kids take communion. Don't let them participate in communion until you feel that they actually understand it. Parents, if you don't understand it, please don't ask your kids to partake in communion. If you haven't grabbed a hold of the fact that our lives are to be lived here on this earth for a different kingdom than yours and mine. So if you've got those little cups in front of you, The Apostle Paul is talking to his church. He writes to them in letters, says, this is, this is what communion's all about. The Lord's Supper is not about eating a meal together and just enjoying food. No, this, this is to be done in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me, the perfect sacrifice. So you have here a wafer on the top. You have juice there in the bottom. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to get out of the way and ask parents for you to lead your own children through a time of communion. An understanding of what Jesus does there at the cross, that his blood covers all things. Whenever we come together, communion is a common union. It's what brings us together. This is the thing that Jesus made possible for us. So I'm going to read through the whole passage and then I'm going to get out of the way. And you lead yourself through, if you're prepared to this morning, your children as well. For I received from the Lord, I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's no end game to that because there's always the opportunity to do that because he is forever. He's infinite. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because we do this, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection, which is implied, until he comes. Let's partake together this morning.